and the meditations in each of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I'm reminded today of a story I've shared before about my nephew Donovan. And I will never forget it, probably because I can relate to it from time to time. When Donovan was three years old, his first sibling arrived on the scene, his baby sister Ella. And she interrupted life as Donovan knew it. One evening, Donovan and his mom and dad and I sat down to dinner. Donovan in his booster chair and Ella was in the next room where we could see her sleeping in her bouncy seat. But partway through the meal, Ella woke up, and she started to cry. And she cried more loudly, and then she cried some more. Donovan's peaceful dinner was disrupted. And he looked over at his sister, who I'm sure he wondered, what is this thing? And he blurted out loudly, be quiet. And no, it did not work. Ella kept crying until mom or dad went over to console her. But Donovan was just beginning to learn about being a big brother. In Matthew's Gospel, we have some disruption going on. When Jesus of Nazareth descends on the scene of first century Palestine, Jesus had been teaching and preaching about the realm of God. He's doing miraculous signs and healings left and right. He's breaking Jewish laws in the meantime. He's upending their world. He's doing and speaking about things that the world that they knew was not teaching them. And he's gaining a lot of followers, both friends and enemies. The enemies from the religious elite who, any given day, surely wanted to yell at Jesus to be quiet. For Jesus was disrupting the status quo. He was threatening their security, their power. They were in charge of the religious law and charged by Rome to keep the peace of the Jewish subjects. And then maybe they could keep their jobs. Well, last week in our passage from Matthew, Jesus asked his closest followers, the disciples, Who do you say that I am? To which Peter, the impetuous spokesperson for the rest of the disciples, excitedly blurted out, Well, you're the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, for centuries, Israel had been waiting for the Messiah, the promised one from God who would liberate them from all oppression and restore the Davidic dynasty, the the kings in the line of their great King David. So when Peter blurts this, this was a joyful moment for everyone. Yet about this good news, Jesus tells them sternly, Do not tell anyone, and we'll soon see why. Because in today's passage, Jesus further unpacks his identity. He shares his Messiah job description with the disciples. And as he does, their joy from last week turns to all kinds of feelings other than joy. They listen as Jesus shares what must be. His journey to Jerusalem, his suffering from the religious leaders, and his crucifixion by Rome. And before he can utter, 
and be raised on the third day, Peter, in his horror, has already stopped listening. Jesus is completely ruining their peaceful, joyful gathering. Biblical scholar Douglas Hare points out that nothing in the disciples' background prepared them for the idea that Israel's Savior should suffer a shameful death. The Messiah was expected to inflict suffering and death on Israel's enemies, not to experience it himself. So Peter won't have any of it. Be quiet, Jesus. This must not be, this will not happen to you, he says. And just where did you get that Messiah job description anyway? There must be some mistake here, Jesus. Have you forgotten who you are? We can imagine Jesus' response. Peter, have you forgotten who you are? Remember back in chapter 4, I called you and your brother Andrew while you were fishing. And I invited you to come to drop your nets and to follow me. Do you remember? And in faith, Peter, in that instant, you followed me. And just last week, Peter, remember I told you that as your name means rock, it's upon rock I will build my church, and it will prevail forever. And you will be one of the leaders, and you still have much to learn. So get behind me now, Peter. Continue to follow me, and watch how I do it so that you can learn about God's love and grace from me. Jesus continues reminding all the disciples who they are. Just as I am not of this world in the world's ways, he says, so you as my followers are called to forsake the world's ways for God's ways, living no longer for yourself, but to live as your true self, which is to live for others, which is to live for who God created you to be. So you be you, Jesus said, and freely take up your cross, freely shoulder the burdens and sufferings of others, and live together in mutual love and support. Jesus explains, if you go after the life the world dangles before you, if you strive to be the self the world defines for you, you will lose your true self. The spirit, light, and joy of God within you will become overshadowed by your fearful strivings. The gospel of Jesus Christ disrupts everything we know from the world, everything we learn from the world. In Father Richard Rohr's words, the gospel refuses to deny the dark side of things. It accepts life as tragic. It proclaims that to go down... To lose life in self-sacrifice is actually to go up and to gain true life. Without properly understanding who we are in all of that, who we are as Christ followers, who we are as children of God, we, like Peter, may distort the gospel, the message. We may climb into the driver's seat. We may wish to deny all suffering. 
and remain stuck on the world's treadmill by ourselves, trying to get ours that the world says we are due. Power, esteem, wealth, things, relationships, belongings, and even love. If we're honest, what we strive for in part each day, each day that we spend on that treadmill, is a life free of suffering. That's what we hope for. But that life does not exist. If we dare to listen to Jesus and to avoid the temptation to tell him, like Peter, to be quiet, if we allow ourselves to look at life through gospel lenses, to hear and see that we not only can and do survive suffering and tragedy, that we grow from it, and that in the darkness of things, God forgives our failings and actually uses them to bring wholeness to ourselves, our relationships with God, with one another, and with all creation. Jesus shows us and tells us how not to lose our lives, our true selves. Jesus says, all who lose their lives for my sake, losing their false selves, because of me, will find their lives, their true God-created, love-infused selves. These past weeks in our nation, we know many have seen great suffering. The suffering inflicted upon others by fearful and hateful hearts, such as in the white supremacy marches in Charlottesville. And of course, the suffering still going on in the wake of Hurricane Harvey, one of the most damaging natural disasters in our history. It's easy to feel powerless as we consider the kind of and the scope of the suffering from these events. And we don't live in those communities. The suffering of those affected may be hard for some of us to comprehend. And as time passes, maybe the suffering begins to feel far away, both in time and place. So as Christ followers, how do we take up our crosses to walk alongside those suffering horrific tragedies like in Charlottesville and Texas, but also in the suffering we see in our everyday lives here in our own communities? Image after image of encouragement is in my mind today as I viewed relief efforts in Texas. Policemen guiding a herd of cattle to higher ground, saving their lives. A seemingly endless line of trucks pulling boats, the owners making their way to help victims of the flood. And monster truck owners doing the same as they're able to navigate deep waters when no one else can. And residents of one apartment complex who created a human chain in the deep waters to help their fellow resident escape from the apartment, the woman was in labor, and she and her husband were guided to safety by this chain of humans. And not to mention the teams of government and state workers and all the civilians in the area, rescuing people and animals in any way possible. 
People across the nation and around the world are sending in money to aid relief efforts. And this is one way we too can join in. There is information in your bulletin today. Money is probably the most needed thing in disasters like this. So I invite you to take a look. And today as we receive our morning offering, we also invite you to also contribute to hurricane relief efforts. You may simply write on the envelope. It's for that purpose and we'll be happy to forward it on to you. The help and the love being lavished for these victims in Texas, most of the time between strangers, this is gospel living. It's true self-living. Living in a way through which God builds us up and heals us and makes us all whole. For when a part of our human family is not yet whole, none of us is truly fully whole. The Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Word of God in Scripture, affirms that the effects of suffering love poured out is contagious. Just as we know that hate breeds hate, love breeds love. So friends, anytime we can relieve the suffering in big or small ways, we are spreading God's love. Many of you know that Knox is supporting a refugee family, the Ali family, who moved here from, they're Somalian, but they moved here from a Kenyan refugee camp where they had lived for years. And every week, a team of volunteers from Knox goes to help them, help the children with their studies, help them all learn English. This is no small undertaking. There are no other Somalis in the area who speak their dialect. So interpretation is difficult. And one volunteer commented on how each week they show up, more and more needs are discovered. And it's truthfully overwhelming, the needs of this family, and probably of any family in their situation. And it's easy to get overwhelmed and wonder, how much are we really helping? But the answer is always, we show up. We show up and we do what we can. For that one hour with them is not just teaching them a word of English or helping one of the kids with their homework. It's living out the gospel. It's living there, showing God's love to these people. It's building relationships. It's bearing one another. It's taking up our cross to help relieve the burden of another. In big or small ways, whenever we show up with any amount of gifts that God has given us to relieve suffering, we find more of our true selves and help others do the same. What does it mean to take up our cross anyway? That visual is challenging. We've seen pictures of Jesus carrying his cross. And it's gruesome. It's heavy. But friends, the gospel charges us not only to do that, but Jesus further on in Matthew's gospel also says, take my yoke upon you. And if you've ever seen a yoke on a pair of oxen or big beasts of burden, you know it's a very large instrument meant to keep the animals together to do their heavy lifting and their hard work. But Jesus said, take my yoke because my yoke is light and my burden is easy. So whenever we take up our cross 
and enter into and walk alongside those who are suffering, the promise is we also get Christ's yoke with it so that we never go alone and Christ is always shouldering the burden with and for us and showing and telling us how to do life in the way of God's realm when the realm of the world would have us run away from all suffering and think that we don't need it. The paradox of the gospel is that in our shared suffering, we gain our shared wholeness. Our task is to remember who we are as we also keep in the word to remember who God is. And last week I shared a visual I was given on retreat while I was on sabbatical this summer. And I want to share it again. At the beginning of the retreat, we were invited to consider God's love for us. I know for me that has not always been easy. So our retreat leaders gave us the image on the screen of a mother gazing at her baby, holding her child, as they exchanged a loving gaze. And we were asked, as I shared last week, to contemplate this image, to get quiet and be still and close our eyes and imagine that that mother is God and that we are that child. And I would invite us now in a moment of silence, I invite you as you are comfortable to close your eyes. Imagine this scene, that God as our loving parent who created you, who delights in you, is holding you, is gazing into your eyes with complete, endless, unconditional love, with eyes and a face that say to you, You are my beloved. With you I am well pleased. Wherever you go, there I am. Know in the depths of your being that I love you and you are worthy and you are mine. Amen.